Welcome to the Campbell Conversations. I'm Grant Reher. My guest today is one of the foremost authorities on the United States Congress. Sarah Bender is a professor of political science at George Washington University and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. Among her many books are Stalemate, Causes and Consequences of Legislative Gridlock. Two weeks out from the midterm elections seems like a great time to have her on the program. Professor Bender, welcome to the program, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Great. Thank you very much for having me. So let me just start with a basic question about the current state of Congress. How would you characterize the current state of health of Congress at the moment? Well, let me quote the sign I saw posted on a tree in my neighborhood. Uh, This is in 2013 uh, at the height of the government shutdown. And of course, I live in the DC suburbs where many people work for the federal government. The sign said, I don't think it was posted just for me, but the sign said, Congress sucks. (laughs) And uh, true, Congress has improved a little bit in the public's eye since 2013, almost a decade ago, but not really. Uh, Congress struggles. Uh, It's not in great shape. The public is largely dismissive of it, oftentimes distrustful of it, and think largely that the Congress works in the interests of the wealthy when it works at all, leaving out large, large, large populations uh, and groups of Americans. So that's the public's view, and it's pretty bad. I wanted to come back to that. But you as an expert watching Congress, do you think it's actually that bad? Or do you think the state of health of Congress, maybe as a public, we're misdiagnosing it a little bit? What do you think? Well, I haven't, I suppose, unfortunately or fortunately, I have some sympathies for the American Congress, given the difficulties that it faces in trying to legislate. But by and large, The state of Congress is not very good, even from Mm. the perspective of those who study it. And oftentimes, if you look to what members or certainly what congressional staff will say, and I think there are just a a number of key problems for it. Um, Understanding that sometimes there's a perfect storm of sorts, and this spring and summer has been one, from the Democrats' perspective, they've been able to legislate on some key problems that have been lingering, some degree of gun uh, tightening of gun laws, uh, infrastructure funding, uh, a, a first attack at global warming. So I want to be sure when we talk about the difficulties Congress faces that it's not all grim <laughs> news, and it does retain some capacity here. But I think the first, if I had to have a, a ticker list of what worries me, in unranked order, uh, it's capacity for solving problems. And that's both a sort of technical problem as well as a political problem. So the the technical problem here is that most of the resources, if you look at say committees and who they hire, is put in communication staff. It's put Mm -hmm. into policy uh, or political staff. It's not put into policy-focused committee staffers. And that's a trend we've been seeing in the House and the Senate developing over time. And it's hard to make good policy if you don't have expert uh, expert uh, or expertise uh, and access to that type of policy information. Now, making policy and making laws is not just about expertise, right? It's about 
political knowledge, like what do I have to do? What type of provisions are gonna build secure enough support? So I don't wanna say if we miraculously invested, if Congress invested and gave itself funds to invest in policy expertise, that its problems would go away, but it's hard to tackle those problems. Um, and, and certainly, right, its usual response is just to write ambiguous statutes, delegate that to the executive branch, to bureaucracies, uh, where the experts are. And in theory, when Congress delegates like that, they actually, you know, part of the trade-off is that, okay, we'll do a lot of rigorous oversight, but without policy staff and sort of oriented members to do that type of oversight, oversight doesn't happen, for better or for worse. Right? We might want the EPA um, making rules and making decisions about polluters and uh, what solutions are. But just to keep in mind, and we can come back to this, the, the, the conservative majority in the court um, doesn't, uh, has sort of sent out a, a, a flare to said, that's not gonna fly with us anymore. Now, it may or may not, but as the court tries to get Congress to be more specific, you can imagine the outcome is no legislation at all. So I worry about policy capacity for starters. Um, I think the other big bucket are sort of the, the politics uh, that complicate lawmaking. And that's certainly captured by this notion of partisan polarization, which mm -hmm. I'm not so much troubled about ideological differences in the Congress, right? One party may be favoring greater role of government, one party objecting to a role of strong role of government. Uh, but I worry about the, the manifestation of polarization in just in terms of partisan team play. Your team is for it, so my team's just got to be against it. And that's harmful to solving problems in the US Congress. First of all, because most of the rules require that Congress seek large bipartisan supermajorities. Um, you can't, there, there are some exceptions, but small majorities can't often solve problems. They need to get buy-in from the opposite party. And it's hard to get buy-in when there's an electoral environment that um, polarizes and penalizes you for working with the other party. Again, solutions can be made. <laughs> they do manage at times, um, but when they can't solve problems, let's say immigration reform, which I think I think both parties agree it's a problem. There's some issues the parties disagree whether things are problems, but immigration, I think they both parties want to see some changes. Uh, but the solution is just to bucket to the executive branch or to the president who acts. You know, we have the DACA program. Uh, to prevent deportation of children who were brought here uh, undocumented, but were brought here as children. But that's tenuous. Right? Mm. There's no statute, there's no law that undergirds DACA, which leads uh, first for courts to get involved. And it leads uh, in this sort of state of suspended um, existence for DACA recipients who don't know whether a conservative majority on the court or a conservative president will undo uh, their status and force them and allow them to be deported. Hmm. So polarization, expertise, um, we can get into more pointed sort of partisan problems on what I would say is the Republican side of the aisle in terms of who's attracted to come to Washington in the first place. Um, I do think that's more of a problem on the Republican side today than the Democratic side but also it's, it, it uh, harms the ability of uh, the house to function 
uh, and increasingly the Senate to function as kind of a place where problems, people go to solve problems. I want to come back to that uh, issue of, of who tends to run for Congress and why a little bit later. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm speaking with Sarah Bender, a professor at George Washington University and an expert on the U.S. Congress. I want to go back, though, to the public's view here just for a second. And um, certainly congressional approval ratings as measured by uh, reliable surveys are very low, as as you know. They're kind of a more, more elaborate way of saying Congress sucks, as you said at the beginning. Uh, but if we go back even before those kinds of surveys are regularly done, uh, certainly there have been moments in our past uh, where Congress has not been viewed very positively. I mean, I one of my favorite Mark Twain quotes, for example, is he, he's writing this. He says, reader, suppose you were an idiot and suppose you were a member of Congress. But I repeat myself. <laughs> so I'm just curious, when in history do you think has Congress enjoyed this low of public esteem as it does now? Or is this, do you think, uniquely low? Uh, as you said, we're, we are somewhat limited because we have polling data, you know, pretty routine questioning about Congress with sort of similar questions over time, certainly to the early 80s. We can get them back to the early 70s, but then they get kind of, kind of sporadic. So before the 70s, we have historical accounts. So it's a little hard to make over time comparisons, but I think what we can learn is by looking at the moments when approval went up. Mm. And the most stark version of that is right in the wake of 9-11, uh, the attack on Twin Towers in, 20, um, in, in the Pentagon in, in 2011. A public approval of the Congress goes up and it it stays 2000, there. 2001. 2001. Oh my God, time, time flies. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> 20 years, 2001. Um, it, it stays pretty high for a couple of months. And if you look at what went on in Congress, so first of all, there are lots and lots of images of you know Democrats and Republicans standing on the Capitol steps singing together, right? Mm -hmm. You had an, an outpouring of political and legislative support for a particular set of policy responses to the 9-11 crisis. And those were passing on bipartisan uh, basis, supermajority bipartisan basis. And overall, that first two years of that, right, the Congress in the wake of 9-11, uh, a whole host of issues that if they were tightly tied to 9-11, they were, had robust political and congressional support. The further you got in terms of substance, uh, education, or other issues, the further you got away from national security and so forth, you begin to see these divisions reoccur. What do we take away from that? Well, you know, part of the reason the public dislikes Congress is that members of Congress run for Congress is uh, by running against Congress. Like lawmakers are the number one offenders <laughs> of this, and they had reason not to be critical of. Congress. And so the messages that voters got, you know, sometimes we call this for the presidency rally around the flag. There was a little rally around Congress and lawmakers themselves were part of, partly responsible for that. A, they acted quickly, but also they stopped criticizing each other and, uh, and the institution. And that's, you know, part of what happens, right? You don't, we didn't really have as dire polarization then or partisanship then um, because the incentives to disagree 
in that narrow moment, we're, we're pretty, uh, we're low. But what does that mean, right? Look at the economy starts to go down and so forth and public opinion always turns down where when the economy goes down or there's scandals in the news. And, and so it's almost the exception that proves the rule, right? That the stars have to be aligned for some sort of crisis that enables Congress to act on a bipartisan basis so that you're getting the support, not from just your own partisans, uh, but from across the board or closer to being across the board. So um, some observers of Congress have zeroed in on the fact that, at least for the House of Representatives, as opposed to the Senate, and I suppose we could say, well, if the Senate isn't any better than the House of Representatives, this isn't gonna fix it. But, but have focused in on the fact that you have to run for election or re-election every two years. And that election cycle is so short as being one of the problems. Do you think, is that a red herring or do you think that's a real problem for Congress right now? Well, it, it, of course it's, it, that that's in the constitution. So it's always right been a challenge. Is it more of a challenge today? Well, I think the, you know, on the one hand, uh, it, it, I think it's important to think about this two-year term in the context of elections generally. And what certainly one of the key forces in these elections is campaign funding and campaign finance. And the cost of running elections uh, has just been exorbitant, like pay more than a million, more a sky, much higher than a million dollars being spent by incumbents for house, uh, house elections. And, you know, multi, uh, you know, in the, the Senate races, 60, 70 million dollars. I mean, just extraordinary amounts of money, some coming from outside the campaigns and outside the districts and states. Um, but it's extraordinarily expensive. And what does that mean? Like, bring us back to the two year term here. Lawmakers are spending an awful lot of time raising money, right? As we say, they walk across the street to non government buildings where they can pick up the phone and quote unquote dial for dollars. They're doing that a lot. And even if you're, you know, I'm, somewhat, I don't know that money is like the scourge of American politics, but it certainly takes time away mm -hmm. uh, from lawmakers who might otherwise be spending time doing uh, more constructive uh, use of their use of their time. So they're always running. That's what mm -hmm. uh, my Brookings colleague, Tom Mann, has always called like the permanent campaign, right? We don't distinguish between governing time and campaigning time. It's the permanent campaign. And that constant looking over your shoulder, if you're a Republican looking to the right and if you're a Democrat looking over your left shoulder uh, to avoid a primary challenge, um, which also speeds up the amount of time you're uh, sort of moves the earlier calendar date where you have to pay attention and to raise money. Um, it's just all consuming. Mm. Right. And if you combine that with the fact, as you mentioned earlier, that they're not investing in expertise and you've got a real expertise problem, you've got time and attention, and the content there. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and my guest is George Washington University political science professor, Sarah Bender. And we've been discussing the state of the United States Congress. So I want to ask you a question about presidents now. Um, Barack Obama, when he ran, he promised to elevate our politics and elevate the dynamic that goes on in Congress, between Congress and presidents. Donald Trump promised he was going to drain the swamp, as he put it, and Joe Biden promised a return to normalcy. None of that happened. Uh, so my question to you is, can presidents do much to change the way Congress functions? Are there things that they can help with? 
mean, this is such a great question because the, I suppose the irony here, continue where we're going, right? The irony is that the president is the most powerful person or institution or position in American government today. And, and it wasn't always so. 19th century, we were talking about lawmakers and members of Congress and the president and the executive branch was just sort of quite um, small and much less consequential. Uh, but the president commands attention, commands attention across the country, across the globe. Um, but he does not command attention on Capitol Hill. <laughs> That's like, I suppose, the, the irony here. And um, why is that? So I think certainly uh, this partisan team play has been problematic in that the president is seen as a leader of the other party if you're in the other party. And so it's difficult for the president to use that whatever national authority he might have or vantage point or reputation to kind of bridge differences. He can't really provide political cover to get big stuff done. And so he's done in this partisan world, certainly in today's right with these knife edge presidential elections, it's hmm. hard for him to come in as representing this national voice. Um, he can speak to the nation, but it, for members of Congress in their own partisan camps or on their electoral camps, it's just much less incentive, uh, much less threat uh, by the president, at least thinking about it. We can come back to the Trump um, who seemed to have a lot of sway over his members, but not necessarily on policy. Mm. Um, so it just, it complicates this sort of slim majorities that we've had presidents who win the presidency by winning the electoral college but not the popular vote it, it undercuts their capacity uh to be this influential voice right to get mm. lawmakers to do what they otherwise wouldn't want to do you know also keep in mind just our you know system of elections right only a third of the senate is up for time some of those senators are never on the ballot even with the president of their own party because mm. of the the nature of whenever they come up for election. And so the president's agenda might not be their agenda. And if they have, if the senator has to face election in an off year when the president's not on the agenda, it's an opportunity to distance themselves. So this, and maybe that was the framers intent. They couldn't quite see what we have become today, but um, sort of dividing and checking uh, and complicating uh, the emergence of large uh, majority or quote unquote tyrannical majorities. Um, that was their point, and to some degree, <laughs> they've been able to, uh, to succeed, um, certainly on run-of-the-mill issues. Um, but again, crisis you know, affords presidents an opportunity to try uh, to set the agenda and to direct the course of Congress, um, sometimes more successfully than others. So adding this up, we've got crisis as a possible way to make this better, and presidents coming in with large majority wins to give them the ability to help Congress function better. So that leads directly into my next question to you, which is that's kind of sounding like Franklin Roosevelt, perhaps. Uh, is there any president in our relatively modern history that you think was the best at working with Congress and getting Congress to be more functional? Who would that be? No. So, I mean, there's always conditions under which these presidents emerge and us dutiful political scientists always want to like think about the conditions <laughs> that afford opportunities for leadership. 
So FDR, for sure, but he's operating in an entirely different context. First, he's operating certainly World War, um, in which the U.S. was engaged, as opposed to uh, the uh, Ukraine-Russia war, where the U.S. is only kind of peripherally involved. Uh, World War, I think, probably he eventually heightened uh, the stakes uh, for the United States and, and for the Congress, um, but also was a different party system, right? Mm -hmm. He was coming in, as you said, with very, very large majorities, uh, some divisions in the op opposition party. So he had the wherewithal uh, to do something like propose an emergency banking law at 9 a.m. and have it enacted into law at 3 p.m. <laughs> but that's so unusual, um, just, just so unusual. And of course, on issues where the Congress was divided on civil rights and race, uh, even FDR had had a harder time and knew um, not not to challenge not to challenge those uh, relations. A lot of modern candidates running uh, on both sides of the aisle will point to Ronald Reagan and say, "Oh, I want to you know I want to do this like Ronald Reagan, maybe different policies, but that's going to be my style." Do you think he was particularly good in this regard? So. What I always think of as why Reagan was so good is he believed in, he really believed in something or or he was such a good actor that he made me believe that he believed in something and it was very crystal clear. And so um, it's harder to, I don't really see presidents quite like that mm. anymore. Um, and so it had staying power and he was able to attract a different cohort of sort of activists into the Republican Party, the religious right in particular, like to ground uh, the Republican Party in a new way and orient it, you know, against the Soviet Union and so forth. So um, for sure, I think a lasting impact, um, but even just sort of looking at what uh, the Trump has done and Trump supporters have done to the party suggests that even a figure like uh, Reagan and his influence has like been crumbled within uh, mm. the base of the Republican party. If you just joined us, you're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. And my guest is George Washington University professor, Sarah Bender. Uh, I wanna return now to something you intimated at the beginning of our conversation talking about uh, how the current system kind of selects for candidates and who's more likely to want to pursue this. And you focused in on the Republican side of the aisle being perhaps more of a problem than the Democratic side. It is very hard to run for Congress these days. You've already ticked off a lot of problems, raising enormous sums of money for one, but it's a very grueling process. You know, if you're in a primary, it's two election cycles before you can win. And as we've already been talking about, you're constantly running for reelection if you do win. So, I mean, the most extreme example I can think of is, you know, you, most people that are first elected to Congress, before they take the oath of office, they've held their first fundraiser. And it's, it's absolutely absurd that way. So, and then the campaigns are nasty, as you pointed out. Uh, so who, how is the system going to select for the best people? I mean, who does it tend to select? Who, what, what's, what's, what's the Darwinian process here? So, um to some extent, it's important not to overgeneralize from particular examples on, on the Republican and the Democratic side, right? Because the, the easy answer to that question is that on the Republican side, something like a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Mark Matt Getz, or, right, that it's selecting folks who are not seeking careers in Congress to solve problems. Um, as we say, they're, they're seeking fame. They're seeking a Fox News show. They're seeking a, attention. Now that they may 
portrayed their reasons for running differently, but that's certainly what it looks like from folks who study study the institution. So that when the House votes to boot particular House Republicans off their committee assignments, it doesn't matter. It frees up their time to go pursue their public persona. So um, there's certainly on uh, the Republican side, particularly some incentive if you're um, motivated and pushed and accrue the support of Trump to be that kind of dis a disruptor uh, mm. for whatever range of reasons. Um, we don't quite see disruptors like that per se on the Democratic side. We, we certainly, and many folks want to draw a comparison, say Marjorie Taylor Greene on the Republican side uh, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mm -hmm. AOC on the, on, the, on the Democratic side because of her public presence. But if you look at her public, what she's talking about in her clips and her Facebooks and all that is, it's about what I did in Congress this week. It's about a uh, you know, a, a barrel benefit they brought home for COVID uh, people who die of COVID. It's about working on the Green New Deal, right? It's very policy focused. So I still think, I, I, I do think there's a distinction between the parties on who's more likely to be uh, running for Congress. Um, and so certainly uh, the opportunities to win on either side are slim because there's so few competitive races. Um, I would say the Democrats is, you know, they're attracting a broader range of folks. Um, mm. But I do wonder about the future of the Republican, uh, particularly on the House side. Mm. We've only got a, uh, about a minute and a half left, but I did want to ask you this question, looking toward the midterms and put you into the role that a lot of political scientists don't like, which is making predictions, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, for a while, it looked like the Democrats were going to take a real shellacking in this upcoming midterm. And then in the summer, Supreme Court has the decision uh, overturning Roe versus Wade, things start to look a little better for him. Now, I think it's somewhat unclear. Um, what's your gut telling you as we head into this final lap of the election process? What, what do you think we're going to see after election day? Well, it's really hard to beat history, right? And the history is that the president's party loses seats. These are slim majorities. This is uh, a very naturally unpopular president not popular, but not quite enthusiastic, even amongst the Democratic base. So President's approval is down. The economy, the inflation is at a 40-year generational high. And even popular presidents, there's a presidential penalty, even when the president's popular. So this is a perfect storm for Democrats losing seats. And in this case, small majorities, certainly probably losing the House. I do think still the House and the Senate come down a couple of races here. And we may not know until de uh, December if there's a runoff in mm. Georgia. So the bigger picture here, these are slim majorities. These are tenuous majorities, regardless of which party is able to capture which are both chambers. Well, you sort of got me thinking that the only way we're going to solve this is to have a big crisis. And I don't know if that's the happiest <laughs> note to end on, but we'll have to leave yeah. it there. Uh, that was George Washington University professor, Sarah Bender. Professor Bender, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. This has been really, really insightful. Thank you so much for having me on. You've been listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media, conversations in the public interest. The Campbell Conversations, Conversations in the Public Interest, is hosted and produced by Grant Reher, engineered by Tom Fazio. Assistant producer is Jacqueline Witwicky, and the program is edited by Mark Lefonier. 
The Campbell Conversations is a joint production of the Campbell Public Affairs Institute at Syracuse University and WRVO Public Media. To learn more about the program and hear previous interviews, visit wrvo.org slash Campbell Conversations.